You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how's it going? Not too bad, Neil. Yourself? Not too bad. We are back behind the microphones for another episode. So let's give the people what they want. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's January 12th, 1851. And in a small Wild West boomtown called San Francisco, two young men are staring each other down, 10 paces apart and revolvers in hand. It's a classic duel. The men's second counts down these seconds, and then, at the count of ten, the two men open fire. Or at least, they try to open fire. According to later accounts, one of them doesn't know how to work his gun and doesn't get off a shot, and the other fires at least three of its bullets into the air before, finally, on his fourth shot, managing to graze his opponent's leg, whereupon the duel promptly ends as both men go to seek medical attention. However, the young man who just got shot is no ordinary cowboy. He's a journalist, and his own account of this duel that he'll get published, which is slightly different from the one I just told you, is about to catapult him to national fame. Whew, well, I'm glad no one seems to be seriously hurt here, David. That is a good development, 1851 in San Francisco, so I'm guessing it's not quite the tech hub that it is today. Why were these men fighting, David? Well, in a lot of ways, they were almost fighting for attention. William Walker was a young journalist, as I've already mentioned, who'd written unflattering things about a number of people in San Francisco high society as he strove to get the national attention he craved to help him pursue bigger projects than just being a journalist in what at the time was a very small, very remote town. And some of his writings, of course, offended a young lawyer in the town who challenged him to a duel, even though most, let's say, older and possibly wiser townsfolk felt that that was not a reasonable response to a journalist mouthing off, but both of them very firmly wanted the chance to show off their prowess, their honor, their dignity, really. A classic duel, David. Honor and dignity on the line. Of course, they don't seem to be very good duelers, but what does Walker put in his account of the duel? Well, Walker's account paints it as a Wild West drama. Even in 1851, with the period of the Wild West still very much ongoing, it's already romanticized on the eastern seaboard of the United States. And Walker plays it up. Two young gunmen, no mention of seconds or a doctor on site or any of the other practicalities which we know were there, but which would make it seem overly planned from the perspective of a back east audience. No, in his account, two young men, both of them excellent shots with six guns, an offended sense of honor versus a journalist whose passionate drive for truth means that he can't back down from his 
in his telling accurate statements, leads them to a blaze of glorious gunfire. And that's the message that gets back to the more populous cities in the eastern seaboard of the United States and helps to get William Walker some financing for his big dreams of being something a little bigger than a small-town journalist. Well, David, there's all sorts of problems with funding journalism today. Maybe dueling is the answer. It certainly seems to have worked for William Walker. So what is he going to do now that he has earned this fame and a little bit of cash to go along with it? Well, William Walker wants to be a successful settler. In 1851, of course, the idea that you could be a settler, just go out, find a patch of ranch land that is not currently occupied by anyone capable of preventing you from taking it, and then turn that into a lucrative career, was still something that people very much saw as viable. So William Walker's first move is to appeal to Mexico City, requesting that they grant him a large portion of valuable agricultural land along the border between Mexico and California, for which he offers them absolutely nothing because he doesn't want to pay for it. Not sure why he needed to get cash for this part of the plan, as it seems like he's not going to pay anyway, but all right, bold move here, David, a good bold move. Well, shockingly, Mexico City is not super into this plan of Walker's to give him a bunch of agricultural land for nothing. I can't imagine why they wouldn't want to just give him free land. So they reply with a note basically stating where you can go if you want to buy land in Mexico, just like anyone else. You can immigrate, agree to follow all of the laws of Mexico, and then purchase land on standard land title claim markets. So, David, is that what William Walker does? That is not what William Walker does. Diplomacy having failed, it's time for him to escalate to the next logical step, war. He is going to invade the border between Mexico and California, the Mexican border regions, seize the territory he wants, and create a brand new country. And he publicly advertises this plan across the U.S. in order to raise a team of volunteers and money to do this, to get the weapons to do this. And he and 45 brave young American men cross the border, intending to create the brand new Republic of Sonora. Wow, David, this escalated quickly. For a guy who wasn't really that good at dueling, he's sure quick to invade another country, start a war, and create his own country. That is quite the bold move. Is Mexico going to be more accepting this time and just give him some land? Yes, it's a bold move from a modern perspective. But you have to remember that this is 1851, just six years after Texas became a state in the United States of America. And remember that before it became a state in the United States, it was a portion of Mexico that declared itself an independent country and then got accepted by the United States, making everyone who owned land there 
quite a bit of money in the process. So the reason why Walker is able to attract supporters for this scheme is because it doesn't seem as crazy in 1851 as it does today. The flip side is, because it doesn't seem that crazy, Mexico is not about to just ignore this crazy Yankee because they know that that does not work. So they dispatch an entire army, thousands of men, hunt down Walker. He's forced to flee across the border back into California, barely in front of the Mexican forces with his 45 volunteers with him. And when he gets back to the U.S., he's arrested on charges of breaking the neutrality acts and put on trial. Well, that did not go the way Walker wanted it to, David. He might have thought it would be merely a matter of walkering, walking. Okay. But not to be as Mexico sends thousands of men to fight off his 45 men. David, this would seem like a pretty open and shut case once he's put on trial. You would think. Sadly, I was unable. I made some efforts, but I could not find an actual record of the trial, of what he argued, what the prosecution argued, so I can't give you any details. All I can tell you is that the jury voted to acquit, and Walker decided that he should come up with a new plan, but not a new plan as in a new life career path, just a different location. Clearly, Mexico was not the right target. So instead, Walker and his little group went looking at a new idea, becoming one of the last but one of the largest of what were known in the southern United States at the time as the filibusters. Okay, David, anyone who's following American politics these days knows a filibuster as a rule that involves talking, the Senate, I don't know, it's complicated. But what was a filibuster back then? So in 1851, a filibuster was an expedition leaving from the United States, going to Central America, and attempting to seize some land in order to make a profit. The term actually comes from a term, old term for pirates, from Dutch. It was a very naked sort of land grab, but in a era when Central America was politically and socially divided and militarily weak, the concept that you could either seize land or get paid off to go away wasn't crazy, and several filibusters did, in point of fact, make some amounts of money. So Walker decided he would follow in their footsteps pick a Central American country that seemed vulnerable, and get into the whole nation-building game once again. It's pretty amazing that he did this once, got thoroughly whooped, and is going to try it again, even if it is slightly a different location, David. I can't imagine that it would go any better this time for Walker, but He's still got about 45 men, and where are they going to go, David? Well, he actually has more than 45 men. He has at least 60 with him on his first boat, and he's looking, and he gets an opportunity. And now I need to stop and tell you a little bit about Nicaraguan politics in the 1850s. But the only thing I'm going to tell you, because these are very complicated politics, 
is that there are two parties, the legitimists and the constitutionalists, sometimes known as the Democrats, and those two groups hate each other bitterly, so much so that they're actually in a state of civil war with two separate cities claiming to be the capital of Nicaragua, sending armies out to fight each other. And the Democratic Party has reached such a state, they're losing the civil war, and they're so desperate that when William Walker turns up looking for an opportunity to seize some land in Central America, they decide, this guy seems youthful, he's got 60 American mercenaries ready to fight for somebody, we should have them fight for us. And they invite him to come to Nicaragua and become a general in the democratic forces. So he does. Well, he's found a side in Nicaragua and he's with the democratic forces. David, is he going to be enough to swing the civil war that's going on in this country? Yes, actually. It sounds bizarre to modern sensibilities, but one of the biggest problems that the democratic party had and actually the legitimists that they were fighting also had was simply money. Central America was incredibly poor at the time, and ultimately, armies like to get paid. So it's hard to maintain a real civil war when there's no funding. But Walker, arriving in Nicaragua, was able to meet with the local American business community on more equal terms than were available to the actual Nicaraguan leadership themselves. And he cut a complex deal whereby he found two local agents of Cornelius Vanderbilt who happened to be living in Nicaragua and wanted to go independent and who were looking for somebody to basically legalize their taking some of Vanderbilt's property to set themselves up as a business. And through a series of complex, possibly fraudulent schemes, they help to finance both him and the Democratic Party's war effort in return for a set of convenient legal decisions by courts controlled by the Democratic faction in Nicaragua. So suddenly, he has tipped the scales of this civil war. They're seizing the bulk of the country. Everything is coming up. William Walker. Well, it's been a long time coming, David, and I'm not certain that fraudulent invasions of foreign countries is probably the best way to go about making things turn in your favor. But it is working for William Walker, David. Is it merely a matter of time before he has control of all of Nicaragua? Well, his initial problem, as he sees it, as things are finally going in his favor, is that he's working with the Democratic Party, who are also Nicaraguans and think that they should be running their own country, even if he's officially a general in their army, that doesn't make him a president who can start giving away free land to his mercenary followers, which is what he wants to do. So he decides that the next logical move is to declare an election for president of Nicaragua, rig the counting process in an utterly ridiculous manner, thereby declare himself the president of Nicaragua, and try and consolidate full control over the country as a dictator. So that's what he tries to do next. 
William Walker, president of Nicaragua. It has a nice ring to it, David. How is he going to rig this election and will it work? So he rigs the election in a simple, not very plausible, but simple way. He declares that an election will be held. He doesn't actually organize all of the messy business of sending people out to go and be election officers and collect votes or anything. He just declares that there's going to be an election, declares that there has been an election, and also he won. Of course, that's not very plausible to the citizens of Nicaragua, who know they never had an opportunity to go and cast their vote, which is a fundamental piece of having an election in most people's view. But William Walker, an experienced writer and journalist who understands how the media works in the U.S., uses that set of skills to try and convince people in America and Britain, two of the most powerful countries in the world at the time, that he is, in point of fact, a legitimate democratically elected leader of Nicaragua, and his opponents are bandits and criminals who don't want to accept that he won an election. Ah, the old fake election trick, eh, David? That's one way to go about it. And will the ignorance or I guess just distance that is between Nicaragua and America and Britain mean that these other nations are going to fall for it and believe that William Walker really is the elected president of Nicaragua? Or are they going to maybe ask somebody if there was an election or not? Well, it doesn't work perfectly. There's no denying that. It's widely reported in both Britain and America that the election was a sham. And Britain universally rejects Walker's claim. America, he has some supporters. They're mostly concentrated in the American South, and it's actually tied to the growing political disputes in America about slavery. Walker, at this point, declares himself to be pro-slavery, which is an incredibly strange thing to do because slavery has been illegal in Nicaragua for decades at this point, so there's no actual slaves for him to be in favor of being enslaved in Nicaragua, but that gains him political support in a polarized American society simply because he's declared his position on this issue, and the American government declares neutrality. They will not be in favor of Walker, but they will also not support Walker's opponents in Nicaragua and the region. I guess that can be considered a win for Walker, David. I can I cannot imagine that using a hotly politicized issue in the US would work to get you No, that that actually seems pretty logical. David, are people in Nicaragua at this point getting tired of Walker? Are they maybe starting to turn against him? So, on the one hand, Walker has very little genuine support left in Nicaragua. There's the legitimists, of course, hate him. His former Democratic allies now also hate him, and the vast majority of the people don't really care who runs the government because they view the whole thing as corrupt, but have no reason to like him. Initially, inside of Nicaragua itself, simply because the country is so worn down after years of brutal fighting in their own civil war, it's hard to raise an actual force of local Nicaraguans to resist him. 
Unfortunately for Walker, he kind of committed a whole bunch of fraud against Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the wealthiest people in the world, who therefore is looking to support anyone who hates Walker. So suddenly, there is some of the money necessary for a resistance to happen floating around. But for that money to reach the people in Nicaragua who could use it to resist Walker, it first has to go through a seaport. And of course, Walker controls the seaports of Nicaragua and has no intention of allowing the money through them. So he finds out quite quickly that the money is arriving through Costa Rica, where Vanderbilt has major business investments. Oh, I had a feeling that that Vanderbilt stuff could be trouble, David. You don't want to defraud one of the richest men in the world. So Vanderbilt wants to fund an army to take out Walker, but he can't get the money into Nicaragua. He's going to go through Costa Rica. Is there an option here for Walker to shut down the border or somehow prevent this money from actually funding an opposition to him in Nicaragua? Well, maybe there was and maybe there wasn't. Unfortunately, that's not quite Walker's personality. His response to finding this out is to threaten to declare war on Costa Rica unless they will shut down their side of the border, prevent any money flowing from Vanderbilt into Nicaragua to support his opponents, and allow him to verify this by sending his agents to the government of Costa Rica just to check to make sure that nothing that Walker doesn't want happening is happening. Shockingly, the government of Costa Rica rejects all of these demands out of hand, and therefore Walker declares war and launches his army onto an invasion of Costa Rica. All right, for those keeping score, I believe this is the third Central American country that he's invaded after Mexico, Nicaragua, and now Costa Rica. That does seem to be Walker's main go-to strategy, David. Well, this is when things turn around from everything looking up for Walker, everything is looking down for Walker. Because Costa Rica, although their army is small, their population is united behind their leadership in general detestation of Walker, and Walker's army is still small. He has a few hundred people, most of them Nicaraguans. He's recruited as mercenaries with extremely low interest and actually dying for William Walker. And in the first few battles, they invade Costa Rica. They're stopped. The Costa Ricans begin a counter-invasion. Juan Santa Maria becomes a national hero of Costa Rica, Merely a drummer boy of only 11 years of age, he burns the filibusters' headquarters at Rivas, which was one of their major bases, forcing the filibuster army into full retreat, and suddenly William Walker is rushing out of the country, surrendering himself to the U.S. Navy in order to get taken back to America and avoid the consequences of being captured by his Central American enemies. A quick turnaround and a decisive turnaround against William Walker, David. The Costa Ricans were having none of it. They throw him out and now he's back in U.S. custody. Is that the end of the saga for William Walker? Almost, not quite. It's currently 1857. He's 
taken back to New York and released. The U.S. government doesn't even bother to charge him with violating the Neutrality Act, despite the fact that he obviously did. They just don't think that any charges will stick in court. I guess after their first time trying him when he obviously violated the Neutrality Act and failing, maybe informed that decision. In 1858, he sails down to Honduras, planning to invade Honduras. He's captured by the U.S. Navy, who take him back to New York. But he's able to argue that the arrest on international waters was illegal, so he's released. He spends a full year in 1859 preparing his next expedition. In 1860, he finally does invade the island of Roatan in the modern-day part of the country of Honduras in 1860. That was actually a complicated question. This time, he gets arrested by the Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy. And they decide to simply hand him over to the government of Honduras, which in the British opinion is the rightful owner of the island of Roatan. And the government of Honduras, thoroughly tired of William Walker's nonsense, order him executed. He was 36 years old and on his fourth invasion of a Central American country. That is a lot of invasions of Central American countries, and he almost got away with it in Nicaragua, David, if he just didn't defraud Cornelius Vanderbilt. I thought that would be the end of him, but I guess it'll have to be the Royal Navy and Honduras that finally puts an end to William Walker and all his silliness and his filibustering. Boy, who knew that the filibuster could be so destructive? It's a fascinating tale, and the word filibuster, I think there's a fascinating story of how its meaning switched so drastically from pirates to mercenaries to Senate procedure. A very strange evolution of that word. Some people might argue that the mercenaries part is still intact. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow us on social media at When Art Thou so you can find out about all our upcoming episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating. We really appreciate it. David, we always like to end with something fun. So how about a quiz to end the show? Sounds good to me. All right. This is one of our favorites, David. I thought we would play a little Jeopardy again. So we have some Jeopardy questions for you if you are ready. All right, go ahead. The categories are 1930s engineering feats, the Iron Age, 19th century America, the century's first year, and European history. Well, 19th century America seems appropriate given the podcast we just... Why don't we lead off with that for 600? David, you've hit the daily double. Right off the bat. There you go. David? In 1847, Marines stormed and secured Chapultepec Castle in this world capital. Huh, that's an interesting one. I'm not entirely sure, but U.S. Marines in 1847, I wonder if that was in Mexico City. You got it, David. Mexico City. A good start. Pick another category. How about European history for 400? European history for 400, David. During the last 17 years of his reign, Spain's King Philip II also ruled as this neighboring country's King Philip I. Philip II, one of the Habsburgs of 
course, but to be Philip the first, I would have to guess what is Portugal? You got it. Good job. Two for two on Jeopardy so far. Pick another category. How about the Iron Age for 400? The Iron Age for 400, David. Iron Age literature includes this epic poem that begins, Sing, O Goddess, the Anger of Achilles. That sounds like the Iliad to me. What is the Iliad? You've got it, David. Two categories left. The century's first year and 1930s engineering feats. Why don't we do 1930s engineering feats, Neil? All right. 1930s engineering feats for 800, David. A highway completed in 1938 allowed one to drive from Miami to this southernmost city in the continental U.S. Hmm. Southernmost city in the continental U.S. What is Dallas, Texas? You're a little off, David. We were looking for Key West. And your last category and last clue value is the century's first year for 1000, David. Australia's first parliament opened on May 9th, 1901 in this city in the state of Victoria. Oh, my Australian geography is not good. I'm going to say, what is Sydney? David, we were looking for Melbourne, but this was a tough one. It was a triple stumper. No one got it on Jeopardy either, so can't blame you too much there. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 